Welcome back, everyone. <laughs> so for me, it's uh, late afternoon. For some of you, it's evening. And what I want to do is to continue to explore in the first part of the talk uh, the nature of mudita and mudita practice, really following our rhythm where we'll cover some in the talk where we've been, what we've been practicing uh, earlier in the day. And then I want to also introduce equanimity and equanimity practice. And we'll be starting to practice that tomorrow. This is the fourth of the Brahma Vihara. So just a few themes. I'll probably talk about 15 minutes on Moody to practice further, and then the rest of the time, equanimity. Hope to give a little bit of time for discussion. I'll see if I can do that. So those of you who know the teachings of the Buddha and elements of Buddha's practice know that it could appear on the surface that there's a lot of talk about suffering right? A lot of talk about being with pain and suffering. The most central teaching is called the Four Noble Truths, and it's often translated, you know, I, I mentioned I like to translate dukkha as reactivity, but it's often translated in terms of these four truths. There is suffering, there is a cause of suffering, there is an end to suffering, and there is um, a path to the end of suffering. And it could seem like the focus is really on just ending what is painful, what is difficult or suffering in life. Sometimes it seems that uh, we may get the message, life is difficult, and then you die. That's it. Okay? Uh, and so it's actually helpful to see that there's um, a perspective that very much has joy at the center. And we saw that earlier reading, or we heard that earlier reading I gave uh, from the Buddha, live in joy, live in love, even among those who hate, live in joy, live in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. And actually, the Buddha was known as the happy one. Another passage I found, drink deeply, live in serenity and joy. Serenity is really close to equanimity. So it's really saying live in joy and equanimity. The wise person delights in the truth and follows the law of the awakened. And I was also thinking of having uh, met the Dalai Lama a few times. Someone who, you know, who lives with the uh, loss of his country 
and who actually ask everyone who comes recently from Tibet to visit him, often hears tales of brutality and torture, and that there's incredible joy there. My, my sister, Liz, um, when she was uh, a graduate student, she was in Ann Arbor, Michigan, at the University of Michigan, and she was a waitress. And she said she was at a waitress once when the Dalai Lama and his entourage came in. And she said, they were really fun to be around. They were just joking and smiling and being really joyful all the time. It was like there, and how many of you have met or seen the Dalai Lama? So you know, he, he's like that. I remember I've been with him a few times. I remember once that I was uh, at a, I think it was a talk he was giving at a gathering, at a conference. And he, he said, I have, you know, I have five points to make. And he went through the first and he went through the second. And then um, he actually went then to the fourth. And a little bit of the way through the fourth, he said, oh, I skipped number three. Oh, I make a mistake. <laughs> Sorry about the accent, but, but it was, um, but the point where it was, it was incredible. It was like he was delighted that he had made a mistake and he was joyful about that. He thought it was really funny. How would that be if we had that approach, right? So there was uh, joy in that kind of circumstance. And so it's interesting that, uh, that that's the case, that joy is, I'll come back to this, joy is really at the center of things. And I think really following from some of Kyra Jewell's themes that actually we can't really touch deeper joy unless we're all also willing to go into what's difficult and painful. Otherwise, it's a little bit of we have a boundary around it. You know, and you start to see further the um, interactions and the relationships between here compassion and joy. Compassion lets us go more deeply into what's difficult and painful. And we need to be able to do that um, if we also want to open to the deeper joy. Otherwise, it's a little bit escapist and maybe rooted in fear. And on the other hand, it really helps to be able to go into the difficulties to have the energy of joy, you know. And I think of um, yeah, just that importance. I think I was actually thinking of people in the civil rights movement who had the uh, resource of song continually. The songs would bring them joy. And it would really give them the, the ballast, so to speak, to be able to go into the difficult circumstances. And I think for all of us, we need to have continual access to joy, uh, to be there for the long haul, and ways to access that joy, whether through the meditation practice or, or in other ways. In, in some traditions, something like joy is seen as right at the center of our being. And so in Hindu tradition, there's the notion that the basic nature of reality is sat, chit, ananda. Sat is being, chit is knowledge or knowing, and ananda is, we might say, is bliss and joy. 
right at the nature of things. Very similar understanding in much of Buddhism, in Tibetan Buddhism, very explicit that bliss is deep in our nature. And I, I would say it's joy, and I'll come back to this, joy is uh, our natural expression when we feel safe, when we're just uh, really being, when we're with uh, those whom we feel connected to and love, when we're doing what we most cherish. There's a natural joy that surfaces. It's a deep dimension of our being. In the context of our practicing mudita, uh, a few a few reference points. Mudita literally means to be pleased to have a sense of gladness. To have a sense of gladness. And, and so the Buddha talked about mudita as the mind deliverance of gladness. We might say liberation through joy. Anyone want to sign up for that? <laughs> okay, liberation through joy. And so I think having a regular, we might say, joy practice can be beautiful. Again, it could be the formal practice we've been doing. It could be a gratitude practice every day. It could be regularly being with beauty. I remember, I don't have the same thing now, but at one point I had every day, uh, I spent an hour in the forest and I was with beauty. And it was, it was, uh, it was just what I did, you know, every day. And so to have a regular practice that connects us with beauty, with what brings us joy, it could be art or music or dancing. And we can see that with the Moody Toad also, we can start with the joy where it comes more easily, but then we extend it to finding joy in others' lives, in all sorts of things, really opening up in that way. You know, along the way, we sometimes work through challenges or difficulties, things come up, we're distracted, just like the other ones, that mudita practice is a practice of purification. We do go through Things come up, that's normal, that's natural in our, in our mudita practice. Like in the uh, reading I gave from the Buddha where he, where he talked about joy even when others hate. Joy even in difficult circumstances. As joy gets more firmly established, it can be there increasingly when things are difficult. Pretty amazing. You know, uh, I, I find this in some traditions. Uh, you know, the ones I know the best are, you know, in the Jewish tradition, there are different ways in the, in the long tradition that there have been ways to keep contact with joy in the midst of difficulties. I think this is also present. The other tradition I know the best is in the, uh, the Black Blues, where there can be a sense of joy that comes out of a very oppressive situation. This is similar in many ways for in much of Jewish history. So I wanted to share uh, a song that I know 
This is from the uh, uh, 18th, 19th century uh, Hasidic rabbi named Anachman of Breslau. And it's, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll sing a song. I don't usually sing songs in talks, but here goes. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov used to say, Friends do not despair. A difficult time has come upon us. Joy must fill the air. We must not lose our joy of living. We must not despair. For a difficult time is upon us. Our joy must fill the air. <laughs> Thank you. So, what a spirit, right? A difficult time has come. Let's stay connected with joy. Put that on your refrigerator, right? Really, um, pretty amazing, you know. Or and again, this I think the same thing is found at times in the uh, the Black Blues. Um, you know, the activist and philosopher Cornel West says the blues artist expressed what he called tragic comic hope. He said there's a paradox of creativity and joy arising out of oppression. They express righteous indignation with a smile and deep inner pain without bitterness or revenge. You can listen to some of the blues artists in that, in that spirit. And so, like I said, there, there can be a sense of... Uh, Joy simply coming out of our being when we're most connected. This is from an Eskimo woman shaman. The great sea has sent me adrift. It moves me as the weed in a great river. Earth and the great weather move me have carried me away and move my inward parts with joy. The great sea moves my inward parts with joy. And I want to finish my short discussion of Mudita um, by reading you another expression of, of joy, simply as the nature of a what, uh, a full, a wise life. And this is, I want to actually, I don't usually do this in Dharma Talks, but I'm going to read you an entire book, like in about a minute or two. Okay, not, not through speed reading, just because it's short. And this is, uh, this is a book, one of my favorite books. It's called St. Francis Preaches to the Birds. Okay, St. Francis of Assisi. And I'll show you the pictures. This is St. Francis. And listen for the joy, listen for the gratitude, listen for the, the mudita. It's 5 a.m., wake up, St. Francis. He opens the window and sings, tra-la-la. He brushes his teeth. So it's a little bit anachronistic, but don't worry. He brushes his teeth and says, thank you, teeth. He washes his toes, and says, thank you, toes. He gets milk. He drinks coffee and says, thank you, coffee. 
He goes through the town, through the apple orchard, over the pasture and up the hill. And the birds come flying, flying, flying. Flying, 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 flying. Then, then St. Francis preaches to the birds. until the sun sets. Yes, until the sun sets. Good night. So that completes my discussion of Mudita. <laughs> so now I'll I'll move on to uh, Mudita's neighbor, equanimity, or upeka. It's interesting how I tend to like to use metta instead of loving kindness and mudita instead of sympathetic joy, but I like to use compassion instead of karuna and equanimity instead of upeka. I don't know. I don't know what that is, but that's what I have found. So equanimity is the last of the Brahma-vihara. And it's a very powerful quality. It's taken as a very deep and sublime quality in the teaching of the Brahma-vihara and in the other teachings of the Buddha. And it's a very beautiful, profound quality that we find, I think, in many of the most beloved human beings that have existed. You know, we can find these dimensions of equanimity. I was thinking, for example, of um, that last speech by uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Probably many of you have heard this, the speech in Memphis, sometimes called the mountaintop speech, where he says, you know, I'm not fearing any man, you know, I'm, uh, I, because I've been to the mountaintop and I've looked over and he says, you know, I might not get there with you, but we will get to the promised land. And there's, a, there's an intense, powerful quality of equanimity there, or maybe it's your grandmother. You know, we, we sometimes talk about equanimity as like the nature of a grandmother who has seen everything and know, kind of knows everything, but is uh, still caring, still very much caring, but the wisdom dimension and the experience dimension is very profound. That's what equanimity is. Or maybe, you know, also thought of Nelson Mandela in prison for decades without really succumbing to bitterness, keeping a kind of balance, keeping a kind of equanimity. So it's a 
deep quality. It's, it has to do with wisdom. It has to do with uh, balance. It has to do with, but also with care and warmth. Now, the very term upeka, which we use in the original etymology, it means to look over. Sometimes said to see without being caught by what we see. In the original language, it was sometimes used to mean to see with patience, to see with understanding. In the Buddhist tradition itself, we find equanimity as the last of many of the lists that are given in the teaching. And it's, it's often taken to be very, very close to the sacred. When we touch equanimity deeply, we're very, very close to awakening and to the sacred. It's the last of the seven factors of enlightenment. It's the last of the Brahma Vihara. It's the last of the virtues called the paramis, which are the core virtues like generosity and patience and being ethical and so forth that are, that are part of the training. Actually, in a Tibetan tradition, if you were practicing what we've been practicing during this retreat, you would practice equanimity first because it's taken to be so important. And then you go on to the others because equanimity really brings, especially the wisdom factor, to help uh, integrate with loving kindness, compassion, and, and joy. So as with compassion, especially, there's a way that we develop uh, equanimity, both in our mindfulness practice and in our practice of the Brahma Vihara. And, you know, as we look more deeply, we can see how these are integrated, that Again, uh, that the mindfulness training, the wisdom training, and the awakened heart training are very much connected. So, for example, the equanimity practice, we especially learn how to be balanced and non-reactive. Learn how to be with what comes up and stay with it. A lot of this we learn only by having been with what's difficult, sometimes gone out of balance, but come back to balance. You know, so I can think of, you know, times when I've really focused a lot on fear or anger, being judgmental, grief, sadness. And I think it's the familiarity with what is difficult that's one of the ways that we especially develop equanimity. And I want to bring in now just a little bit that for me, um, equanimity is particularly in my mind uh, connected with my, my father, Simon, who died about 15 years ago. And we actually uh, celebrated his, uh, what would have been his 100th birthday about a uh, little more than 10 days ago. We had a gathering and a remembrance. And I think of him in relation to equanimity because he went through a lot. 
but he kept a kind of balance and there was a joy. And so, for example, he came from a fairly poor working class uh, background, uh, actually grew up in, in uh, Brooklyn, New York. And he wanted to, originally when he was 18, he wanted to go to West Point, but he wasn't permitted to do that because they were not really admitting people of a Jewish background. So he couldn't go there. And so he enlisted in the military when he was 18. And that was, if you, yeah, that was 1939. And so he was in World War II for six years. And a number of his friends died. He was in the Air Force. And then he uh, was able to go to college on the GI Bill. And then he wanted to go to medical school. But again, there were quota systems at that time against Jewish people, and he couldn't go to medical school. It's one of the reasons why there's so many old Jewish pharmacists. Because <laughs> they couldn't go to medical school, but they could go to pharmacy school. Anyway, a little, little story. And those, those quotas actually didn't end until the 19, early 1960s. Um, so, um, but he, he did okay. Um, and also in his life, he had a lot of losses. He, um, he had psoriasis all over his body but he was not self-conscious. He would go to the swimming pool. He started going uh, blind when he was in his 40s, probably from unsupervised research when he was working as a chemist for the government. And he later, in his 50s, developed cancer and was given, I think, a two-year prognosis, but he lived uh, like 27 years. And, you know, in the midst of that, there was a lot of balance and actually something came out that was deeper. So I think of equanimity and maybe I'm even dedicating this talk to him. Yeah, so, that's, so that's there for me. So let me name some of the qualities of equanimity. And maybe you can even think of people maybe one of your parents or grandparents or someone you know or a public figure. It's a very beautiful quality. Again, uh, a starting quality is balance. Um, balance means that we can be with what's happening increasingly without reactivity. It doesn't mean that uh, we're necessarily calm or tranquil. But it means, you know, we can be really, really busy and hectic, but can I be balanced? Sort of the uh, eye of the hurricane. Things are swirling around me. Can I be, have a certain level of stillness? That would be equanimity. Balance in the middle of things. So, that, so you can see that learning about our own reactivity and becoming less reactive is central to developing equanimity. And again, we especially learn this by being out of balance and practicing and training and coming back. A second quality is a kind of evenness. We can increasingly be with whatever comes up and keep that balance. You know, this comes up, that comes up. Okay, I can deal with it. There's a kind of evenness. And 
in the context of the Brahma Vihara, this evenness means that we actually relate with balance, equanimity, and care increasingly to more and more beings. We have equanimity in terms of what's happening, but we also have, have care. One of the ways this would express in a retreat is that we have more and more continuity. I can keep doing the practice through the ups and downs, through this time of day, through that time of day. And, you know, after the retreat, it means I can keep some evenness with whatever happens. One of my favorite expressions of this evenness is in uh, Japanese haiku. And I, I want to read a, an equanimity haiku right now. So it, remember, haikus are, are really brief, so now's not the time to be distracted because they're just 17 syllables. Okay, ready? This is from Basho from the uh, 17th century. So think, see, if, see how you can sense this to be an equanimity haiku. Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. That's it. Okay, why is that an equanimity haiku? Well, he's just really describing it. If, it, if he had said, fleas, lice, I have to remember not to have the horse so close to my pillow. Ah, that would not be equanimity, but he just says it very matter-of-factly. So I'm interpreting that as an equanimity haiku. Another quality of equanimity, the first I mentioned is balance, there's evenness, there's also a kind of unshakability. You know, again, it reflects uh, a deepening of our practice. No matter what happens, I can stay connected to that core. So it's a little bit related to that uh, question that came up uh, that we were looking at earlier. You know, I'm, we, we may be quite open, sensitive, and sometimes get knocked around. So some of this unshakability can be helped by that grounding in the body that, that uh, I was talking about earlier. And one of the ways in the teachings that this uh, unshakability is expressed is really a practice of seeing that which knocks us around, studying it. And one teaching that brings out some of the ways we get knocked around it's called the teaching of the eight worldly winds, or the eight winds that blow us around. And these are expressed in a series of four, um, four pairs, we might say. Four pairs of, in which one expresses something more positive, one something more negative. And we get knocked around by the positive as well. So the eight winds are pleasure, and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute. That would be like having a, other people have a good image of us or a bad image of us. And then praise and blame. So one of the ways we can develop equanimity is really look carefully at how these winds work for us. It's not easy practice. How can I look at my relationship to pleasure and pain? Can I be balanced with these? Or do I get attached to the pleasant and push away the unpleasant? Similarly, do, do I get attached 
when good things happen and push away loss. So this is really pointing to, I think, in our mindfulness practice as well, I think, is in our emotional lives and the mudita practice, ways that we can, can develop equanimity. One story which has had a big impact on me, and I saw someone asked in the chat to uh, repeat those. So it's praise and blame. No, I'm sorry. First one I mentioned, uh, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. And one story I heard uh, from one of my early mentors, uh, someone named Larry Rosenberg. Some of you know he founded the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center in Massachusetts. And Larry told me this amazing story. I thought it was amazing. Uh, of when he was studying Zen with a Korean Zen teacher named Sun Sunim, uh, also living in Cambridge. And he was living at the Zen Center and he was supposed to teach like a four or five day Zen retreat that happened right after Christmas. Trouble was, uh, no one signed up for the retreat. So Larry went to the Zen teacher and said, I guess we don't teach the retreat, right? And some of you have studied Zen, so you can maybe predict what the response might be. It said, um, Larry, I want you to teach the retreat. I want you to be at all the sittings, give all the instructions, and give all the Dharma talks. Okay, five-day retreat. Larry did it. He said the first day or two, he felt really dumb. Right? And he was doing all these things and going through it, but then maybe the second or third day, something suck, sunk in about how, um, I don't know, dignified this was, or how there was a teaching here. I think it was an equanimity teaching, you know, that a kind of steadiness, no matter what happens. And he said after that experience, you know, as a teacher, he really just kept on showing up, you know, Sometimes, you know, in, when teachers get together, they said, how was the retreat? Oh, it's pretty good. We had 90 people, a lot of great MMTCP people. Wonderful, <laughs> right? And uh, or how many people came to the retreat? Well, we had seven. Uh, not so many people, huh? You know, so you can get into that discussion. Larry said after that experience, he had no interest whatsoever in any of those discussions, right? There was the quality of, of unshakability. There's a quality also of understanding and wisdom. I mentioned that equanimity brings in the wisdom dimension. We see the, maybe the causes and conditions we can understand. It's like there's a line from uh, Longfellow, which says, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life sorrow 
and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. So some of equanimity comes from understanding and wisdom. And oh, I can remember there was a, in one workplace, there was a person who was kind of my nemesis. Whatever I wanted to have happen, he, he was an administrator. And I was a teacher. And whenever I wanted to, I, I thought often when I wanted to do something, he would kind of stand in the way. Anyone have a nemesis at work? Okay, some of us do. So, and then, you know, so I would get, you know, sometimes reactive. And then one day, I had a phone discussion, and he was putting blockages against what I thought was a good idea. And I started getting reactive. And then, at a certain point, I just, pretty soon, I just said, oh, he has this background, you know, there are these uh, constraints of the job, pressures of the work. You know, he has his conditioning. I have my conditioning. And when we get together, it's like that. And there was some understanding. And I, for whatever reason, I let go of my reactivity there. And I just could see it. And after that, I took a really different perspective, you know, still challenging. But the reactivity was lessened because there was more understanding. And that, that's, that's bringing in the equanimity factor. You know, something which helps me in that way, uh, I think of uh, uh, someone who I interviewed. I did a book once called The Engaged Spiritual Life on combining inner work with um, social change work, social service work. And I interviewed a lot of people. One person I interviewed is named Dr. Uh, Arya Ratni from Sri Lanka. Who I, who I met a number of times. And he told me that in relationship to the uh, civil war and the difficulties in Sri Lanka, he said, we have a 500-year plan. So that's kind of equanimity. That's understanding causes and conditions. He said, a lot of what happened was set up by ethnic conflicts. A lot of those were really uh, aggravated by the colonial regime. And that's many hundreds of years, right? And we need a 500-year plan to address the issues because the, the roots of the issues are 500 years in the making. That's a kind of equanimity and, and clarity. There can also be a kind of faith that's connected with equanimity, a kind of balance that comes, a kind of faith really in the nature of our being and the nature of the human mind that can come as we deepen in equanimity. There's also, and I'll get to this in more detail in a moment, there are qualities of joy and warmth, of kindness. The other Brahmavihara are intermingled with with equanimity. And lastly, I'll come back to this also, there's a quality of responsiveness or action. And that really leads me to, to point to two challenges with developing equanimity. One of them is pointed to traditionally that the occupational hazard of equanimity is getting maybe a little bit too caught in the wisdom or understanding dimension so we lose some of the heart dimension. 
and this is called indifference. Sometimes we can have uh, equanimity, um, not have as much caring, so it can be a little bit aloof. And we'll find this sometimes with our own cultivation of equanimity. You know, it can be a little bit aloof or distanced or maybe overly intellectual, and it won't have the metta, compassion, and joy. You know, and even sometimes, uh, sometimes in, in uh, traditional Buddhism, sometimes equanimity is used like that. Um, you know, I, I had some uh, friends who organized a conference in uh, Thailand, and they heard stories at times. Um, this was, uh, uh, there was a workshop particularly where some people told stories of sometimes monks would tell women who were being abused by their husbands, be patient, develop equanimity, so that the karmic forces will stop and everything will be fine. I don't know, from, from our perspectives and from their perspectives, and they were, from, they were Thai, they questioned that, right? That it seemed like a misuse of equanimity or a distortion you know, of equanimity. And so we, we practice equanimity through our mindfulness, through our cultivation of wisdom, through our being able to be with the eight worldly winds, to be with our own reactivity. And we also cultivate um, equanimity through the phrases, and we'll work particularly with those Tomorrow, phrases like, um, one that I work with is, no matter what I wish for, things are as they are. And I sometimes do that practice. And it's very good to do equanimity practice after we've done metta, some, so the heart's open. And then I might practice and I might direct my uh, equanimity practice towards a particular being and more or less say, no matter what happens for you, no matter what I wish for, things are as they are. And I kind of say, oh, I want this to happen. Ah, and I kind of touch base with where I'm not really equanimous. That's often my experience with the uh, equanimity practice. And, we, and we'll, we'll have a variety of phrases and we can see, see the ones which, which work for us. We've mentioned that as the equanimity is developed, to really be mature, it has to integrate the other three. So equanimity will have aspects of metta and compassion and mudita or joy. And I'll come back to that. The other distortion is that equanimity can be more passive or resigned. Oh, everything's happening, whatever, right? But equanimity in its mature form is also responsive. It acts. Again, that can be a distortion. That we may think that we're being equanimous, but we're actually, again, being a little bit aloof, a little bit removed, not acting. And so there is that commitment to respond and act. And that's particularly where 
the other Brahma-vihara can really um, have an impact. If we're doing equanimity practice, but also compassion practice, we'll be aware of the suffering. We'll be in connection with joy and metta, so the heart's open. And then equanimity practice will give us the ballast or the balance, the wisdom factor that then merges with the other three. And so responsiveness is very important. And when I was doing those interviews for that, for the book I did, I found that over and over again. Equanimity was really, really central, but it was always connected with being responsive and acting. You know, and I thought I'd read another quotation from Dr. Ari Ratney that came out of my interview. He basically said, when I act, I always can learn from it. There's no such thing as failure. And this came out of, I interviewed him, you know, I don't know. He was 50 years into, maybe, I don't know, 50, 40 or maybe 40 years into doing this work where he set up a network uh, called Sarvodaya in Sri Lanka, you know, that had 15,000 neighborhood community organizations, all of them bringing mindfulness and Buddhist practice and connecting it with the issues of their communities. This network had a stronger, more effective response to the tsunami in 2004-2005 than the government of Sri Lanka. So this is what he said, when I do something with good intentions and I quote-unquote fail, I do not take it as a failure. It may be a failure to others, but to me it is not a failure because that failure may have taught me equanimity or detachment or renunciation. In learning to accept failure, in a sense, I succeed. Every action that I carry out carries an internal reason, which is always beneficial to me. So I want to I want to finish by talking again about the interrelationship of all the Brahma Vihara, which which really um, is particularly manifest with equanimity. That all of these four interrelate. This is from a, a beautiful essay, and maybe we can put this on the resource page. It's a short essay, about ten or fifteen pages, by. Uh, a former, it was a German monk named Nyanaponika Tara, who I think died about 1980. He wrote a beautiful essay called The Four Sublime States, which is about these four practices that we've been doing. And I'll close with this. And this is, these are some excerpts from the essay. Equanimity is the crown and culmination of the four sublime states of the Brahma Vihara. But this should not be understood to mean that equanimity is the negation of metta or compassion or sympathetic joy, or is that that it leaves them behind. Far from that, equanimity includes and pervades them fully, just as they fully pervade equanimity. Metta gives to equanimity its selflessness, its boundless nature, and even its fervor. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into a cold indifference and keeps it from isolation. Compassion urges equanimity again and again to enter the world, to be able to stand the test by strengthening itself. Joy gives to equanimity the mild serenity 
that softens its sometimes stern appearance. It is a smile that persists in spite of the deep knowledge of the suffering of the world. A smile that gives solace and hope, fearlessness and confidence. Equanimity rooted in insight is the guiding and restraining power of the other three. It gives to metta an even unchanging firmness and loyalty. It endows it with the great virtue of patience. Equanimity furnishes compassion with an even unwavering courage and fearlessness. To the active side of compassion, equanimity is the calm and firm hand led by wisdom, indispensable to those who want to practice the difficult art of helping others. In these and in other ways, equanimity is the crown and culmination of these other three. It is balance rooted in insight. However, it is not dull, heartless, and frigid. It is a fullness of understanding, is the manifestation of the highest qualities of the awakened heart. So I'll stop here and let's just take a few moments to see what may have resonated with each of us. There was a lot. Let's just see what that which resonates with you and, and see if any questions are arising also. Take about a minute just to reflect silently. So thank you for your very kind attention. We have a little bit of time if you, anyone has a question, reflection, sharing. Looks like Sienna Rose, please. Hi, thank you. That was very powerful and beautiful. Um, you know, depending on what kind of heart and mind state I'm in, the one thing you said about equanimity, no matter what I wish for, things are as they are. Yeah. So that could really take me down into a very kind of unforsaken place. Yeah. And then on the other side of the spectrum, and I'm appreciating it, I'm just asking you to, if you can weave it together a little bit more. Yeah. The other side of the spectrum was equanimity in its mature form acts. Yeah. So how would I get the felt sense in my being about when to act? Because no matter what I wish for, things are as they are. Yeah. That I don't feel any sort of like momentum there yeah. towards action. So if you could just say a little bit more about those two. Yeah. Really yeah. And this, this goes back to the, uh, remember that the, um, Working with the phrases is a kind of a training. We want to find the phrases which, which work for each of us. So, and we'll have a, a number of other choices, and many of you have already seen it, and the, the phrases are 
are there on the homepage to look at even before tomorrow when we when we go to them. But it could be just you make maybe a minor modification. Uh, no matter what I wish for, things are as they are, and I will respond. <laughs> yeah, just make a modification like that. Uh, I. I <laughs> Got it. Yeah. So, so we really want to. Yeah, because I think you're you're right. Uh, there's certain ways of it, that these could get expressed, which could not be aligned with our understanding so well, and so we can tweak them a little bit. So, if you know, if we really want to uh, make sure that we know that this is about responding, we can put that in the in the phrase itself. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the key is to uh, really, we want to really see that there are kind of these two aspects. We want to also see where we're reactive, right, about a given situation. And sometimes though, those phrases can help, you know, so um, things are as they are, but I respond to things as they are. <laughs> Yeah, maybe, and maybe just to clarify, if I use that phrase, and that may not be the best one for some of us, if I use that phrase, things are as they are, and they can be different next moment, <laughs> right? They're not written in stone. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean, oh, this is how it is and will be, right? So, yeah, so thank you for that. It's really, help. we need to clarify the phrases. I, my heart is uh, is beating again, so. Okay, very good. good. Thank you. <laughs> Looks like, uh, I don't know if it's this order, is it um, uh, Jerome and then Pierre? Hi. Hi, Jerome. Uh, I wanted, I put this question in the chat, but it, it didn't, uh, um, it didn't get read, so I thought I'd raise my hand. Basically, I'd like to know the difference between equanimity and presence. Equanimity and presence? Yes. And yeah. Like Tara Brock talks about presence. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, all of this would depend on how we were using the term, right? So people can use words in different ways. and uh, But if we use presence to mean something like mindfulness, um as we cultivate uh, more and more equanimity, equanimity, equanimity will be part of our mindfulness. So eventually, all of these get integrated with each other. And so, my, you know, the more I'm experienced with being with things which knock me around, my mindfulness will be steadier. I'll have equanimity that I both developed in my mindfulness and will be uh, reflected there. Uh, but generally speaking, presence is more pointing to the quality of just noticing what's happening. Even to have any mindfulness or presence, we need some degree of equanimity. So maybe that's, uh, so they, they, they sort of point to different aspects of our practice and of our being. Ultimately, they get integrated. Thank you. Thank, thanks very much, Jerome. Looks like uh, Pierre. Okay. Um, 
I, I want to appreciate that it's more of an appreciation, a reflection than a question. Okay. And it mainly relates to having brought forward the action part. Yeah. With the example you provided, when I act, I always learn from it. Um, which I think the action part is, is really crucial. I think like uh, in a lot of the work that we're doing, it doesn't come up as often. Yeah. But it seems like it is part of the equation, which I appreciate. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Pierre. And it's also, we brought it out fairly strongly with compassion. You know, I was talking mm -hmm. about there's both a receptive and an active dimension to compassion. So mm -hmm. the active dimension, and of course, meditating is a kind of action. But the action in terms of maybe being out in the world or helping others, that comes out probably most clearly with compassion and equanimity. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Good. Um, Mayumi, please. And we also have a question in the chat. Okay. Let's, we'll go to Mayumi and then the, the chat question. Hi. Um, after Sienna raised question, um, I have a phrase that I'm not sure if it works for equanimity. I say, I acknowledge my resistance to accept how things are, but I do not deny how they are. How does that feel to you, uh, Mayumi? Does that feel, does it bring out a, a more of that sense of balance and able to be with a variety of things? To me, I feel more honest yeah. that I have a resistance. Yeah. So I'm not just saying I accept how things are, you know. Yeah. But so like I'm I because when I say no matter what I wish for things as they are, feels a little cold or like I'm just trying to tell myself too much or something. Yeah. But once I acknowledge my resistance to accept it, and then still find that, but I'm not actively denying. There's something that I'm not getting yet, but I'm trying there or okay. something. So Can you say your phrase one more time? Sorry. I acknowledge my resistance to accept how things are, but I do not deny how they are. I think that's getting at equanimity. I mean, it's... Um it's you're acknowledging some maybe at times reactivity about the way things are wanting them to be different but there's also the moment of um saying this is how things are and so i think that brings in aspects of equanimity yeah thank you we can add it to the list <laughs> thank you Good, and then maybe uh, maybe the last one, uh, the, what we get from the uh, chat, uh, Onyx. Yeah, so this person says, I feel like I have witnessed a kind of equanimity in some children that I have worked with who have endured a lot of difficulty in their short lives. They accept the difficulties and difficult people in their lives, but reflect a sense of joy and hope. They also tend to show compassion and empathy for their peers, even if it goes against the social grain. Would well, you characterize this as equanimity? Yeah, we probably want to know more uh, uh, whether they in some ways can be with what's difficult or if just the kind of the, the joy is sort of uh, still able to push out the difficult experiences. So 
but it sounds like uh, so I probably want to know more. But I guess what I'm what I'm guessing is that you're saying that people may have had difficult experiences, but they they um, out of it has maybe come more compassion or balance. That's what I'm I'm guessing. And that if that's the case, that would be getting at equanimity. If the difficult experiences um, weren't fully processed, maybe there was some trauma, then uh, then that would still have to be worked with. So it's a question of whether I think the uh, experiences of the past, whether there was learning and in some way uh, uh, a capability of you know being present, which might be a lot to ask uh, for for younger children. So so basically, I don't know, but it's there's something there that sounds very precious. I'm sorry, sorry, we we're not in dialogue, but that's that's I think the best I can do with that one. Maybe we can come back to that later. You know, be in be in dialogue more. <clears throat> Well, thank you so much. Equanimity is, like I say, it's um, it's something I love, and it's a beautiful, challenging quality. We'll be looking at it further, but we'll also we're still developing mudita for uh, the rest of the day. We'll be introducing equanimity uh, tomorrow morning, so we can still stay with the uh, mudita practice up through then. And again, have a sense maybe of these. Four qualities really interpenetrating each other. And uh, you can start to see, oh, is there some equanimity in my mudita? You probably already could see that some in the, in the compassion. And see how these uh, really relate to each other. So with that, let me uh, say again, thank you for uh, your kind attention. Let's just take again a moment as we typically do what comes next and how to continue the practice. Take about 30, 40 seconds to reflect. So again, thanks everyone and uh, Till the next session, we have chanting in a little less than half an hour. And so, uh, till next time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.